Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of John, chapter 11. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. You know chapter 11. You know two things by now for sure. Number one, you know Lazarus has been in the tomb for how many days, y'all? For four days, and tears are flowing, and everyone is mourning, and Jesus is weeping. Why? Why is Jesus weeping? Because he's a sympathetic Savior. Because he shares in our sorrows, he's weeping because he's a man. He's weeping because he loves Lazarus. He's weeping because he loves Mary and Martha. He's weeping because at this moment, death had been victorious over his creation. You also know Jesus claimed to be the resurrection and the life, yes? And he substantiates that claim with a blazing display of power. As he performs his seventh and greatest and final miracle, he stood at the tomb of Lazarus last week. Were you with me? And he said, Lazarus, just you come forth. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth and join us among the living. Come forth and reclaim the abundant life that I've given you. Lazarus, come forth and live again. Now, you might think that after this incredible miracle, everyone at the tomb would realize that Jesus was the Messiah indeed. You might think, nope, didn't happen that way. Some believed and some didn't. Hold your finger right here in John chapter 11 and turn with me to John chapter 1. Interesting enough, verse 11. John chapter 1, verse 11. And if you're looking at it, say, I'm looking at it. And uh, come on, read it with me. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now listen, I want you to understand that John chapter 11, verse 1, he came to his own, his own did not receive him, is a statement that becomes, are you listening? is a statement that becomes the pattern for the rest of the book. So Jesus has been doing miracles about three years, you know that. He does the greatest and final miracle in raising Lazarus from the dead, and he's constantly rejected by his own, which is exactly what John told us in chapter 1. Now think about it. The God-man, the healer, the bread of life, the giver of life, the living water, the resurrection and the life, the great shepherd, is rejected. He was hated. He was despised. And in just a few short weeks, the Jews' hatred for Jesus reaches a climax as they will nail him to an old rugged cross. Remember I told you that John chapter 11 divides nicely into how many sections, saints? Four sections. The first section, you know this, is the preparation of the miracle. And if you've missed any of these teachings, we've actually taken chapter 11 and divided these four sections into four separate teachings that you can order or pick up in the bookstore. The first section, the preparation of the miracle, 
in verses 1 through 16. As Mary and Martha sent a note to Jesus and told him that their brother Lazarus was sick. And Jesus showed up four days later. And by then, Lazarus was dead. The second section, the arrival of Jesus in verse 17 through 37. Jesus and his disciples arrive in Bethany to find Mary and Martha weeping over the death of their brother Lazarus. And thirdly, we talked about it last week. Were you with me last week? Just a show of hands. Were you with me last week? Okay, that's a good number of you. You know then we talked about the miracle itself in verses uh, 38 through 44. As Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus stood at the tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out the tomb, remember? And Jesus told his disciples, loose him, get those grave clothes off, and let him go. Today, we come to the fourth and the final section of chapter 11, the result of the miracle. And we're going to find that in verses 45 through 57. I've titled this sermon, you got a pen? The Plot to Kill Jesus. The Plot to Kill Jesus. John chapter 11, saints, looks like we're going to come in for a landing on chapter 11 this morning. John chapter 11, we pick up in verse 45. If you're looking at verse 45, say amen. Amen. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider it expedient for us, watch the saints, that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, what did he do? He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And then... From that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Saints, let's stop right there. Give me your attention. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was an awesome miracle. Again, go ahead and look at verse 45, if you will. Many of the Jews believed in Jesus. Now, understand something. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were well known in Bethany. So when Lazarus died, the news spread like wildfire. It was probably in the obituary section of the Jerusalem Post. Everybody knew this man was dead. Now listen, Jesus knew that raising Lazarus from the dead and doing this miracle would be like pouring gasoline on a fire that was already burning in the hearts of the Pharisees. So Jesus is well aware of what this miracle means and what it will do. But did y'all pick this up as we've been reading through? Did you pick this up? Nobody ever denies the miracle. Did you get that? The Pharisees don't deny it. The haters don't deny it. Why? Because you can't. How can you deny that someone who was dead is now walking around? Y'all say a better amen than that. You can't deny it. Nobody denied it because you can't. You can't deny it didn't happen. So what do they do? Well, they just say, don't confuse me with the facts. 
We know he's not the son of God. It doesn't matter if he raised the dead. We want him dead. He's a threat. Look at verse 46. Tells us some believed and some didn't. And the ones that didn't went to the Pharisees and filed a police report. That's what's in my Bible. If you guys would just read a Bible, you would see that. Apparently, you don't read the Bible. The police report told them the things that Jesus did. So what we have here, ladies and gentlemen, listen, is something very, very familiar in the life and the ministry of Jesus. What's that, pastor? Take your notes, write it down. Division. Division. Division is categorically the reaction of the people in Jesus' day. And division is categorically the reaction of people in our day as it relates to Jesus, somebody say amen. amen. People today remain divided concerning Jesus. And let me help you. Listen, the gospel, contrary to understanding, the gospel of Jesus Christ divides. The gospel of Jesus Christ causes division. And I think it's a terrible misnomer, and this is why I bring it up. I think it's a terrible misnomer because Jesus Christ, people think that Jesus came to unite the world, uh, that Jesus came to make us all brothers and sisters universally. Listen, Jesus did not die to unite the world. Actually, listen to me, it's the opposite. Jesus died to divide the world into categories. Those who are on the Lord's side and those who are on the other side or those who are on the world's side. Over and over in the Bible, we hear this recurring theme of division. You got a pen? You need a pen right here. I don't have it for you on the screen, so write this down. You only need to write down one word. I'm going to give you five ways the gospel divides, and I want you to write it down. You only need to write down one word. The gospel divides universally. The gospel divides intentionally. The gospel divides domestically. The gospel divides demandingly. The gospel divides permanently. We're going to talk about each of those in just a second. The gospel divides universally. The gospel divides intentionally. The gospel divides domestically, demandingly, and permanently. Universally, intentionally, domestically, demandingly, and permanently. First of all, the gospel divides universally. I have it for you on the screen in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. It tells us, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what, saints? A sword. Jesus said he did not come to bring peace to the world, but a dividing sword. Now listen, put the Bible together. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us the word of God is quick and powerful, somebody help me, and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we know that the sword that Jesus brought to the world was the razor-sharp edge of the word of God. The powerful gospel of Jesus Christ does not unify, it divides. Jesus does not unite history and humanity. He divides it right down the middle. The division isn't ethnic or regional. It isn't black or white. Somebody say amen. amen. It isn't Democratic or Republican. Say amen. amen. It isn't Tea Party or Independent. I'm trying to cover everything. <laughs> Jesus does not divide the world based on political ideologies. The universal division created by Jesus is, listen, you're either saved 
or lost. It is as simple as that. The gospel divides not only universally, but number two, the gospel divides intentionally. What do you mean, Pastor? Well, listen, the division wasn't random. It was intentional. Jesus often talked to people about entering one of two gates, didn't he? Or two roads, the narrow gate or road that leads to life eternal, the wide gate or road that leads to hell and destruction. Those two roads take you to one, or two, one of two destinations. Jesus compared people to two kinds of trees, good or bad. He said, if you're a good tree, you'll bear good what, saints? Fruit. If you're a bad tree, you'll, you'll, you'll bear what, saints? Bad fruit. Jesus often spoke of two foundations, the solid foundation of the rock, the sinking foundation of the sand. If your life is built on a solid rock, when the wind comes, you'll stand. If your life is built on sinking sand, when the wind comes, you'll be destroyed. Jesus used these kinds of illustrations to divide the world by the gospel intentionally. Number three, the gospel divides domestically. Again on the screen, Luke chapter 14 in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now the word hate, if you're taking notes, you write this down is a comparative term in the Greek language, and it means to love less. It means to love less. Jesus is saying, when you give your life to me, a son who doesn't know Jesus will be against his saved father. A lost father who doesn't know Jesus will be against his Christian son. An unsaved daughter who's at odds with her saved mom. An unsaved mother-in-law will be against her saved daughter-in-law. Jesus was talking about the most intimate of all human relationships. In other words, our love for Jesus should transcend and supersede every other human relationship, even family relationships. And Jesus is saying, if you have anything that you love more than you love me, it's not going to work. Did you get that? Now, have you heard people say, I was talking to my son about this yesterday, as a matter of fact, and... um, um, we're in his office, and, uh, which is a mess. And um, <laughs> it's actually like a little recording room, sound room, whatever. And uh, we were in there as I pushed things aside to get in. And, uh, and we we're talking about how, we, you know, have you ever heard people, and just maybe just show, show hands, you ever heard somebody say, you know, they'll say, uh, Jesus is, I need to make Jesus number one in my life. Anybody raise your hand? Nice and high. I can't see you. All right. We've all heard people, somebody say, Jesus, I need to make him number one in my life. Can I share something with you? Listen, Jesus doesn't want to be number one in your life. As a matter of fact, Jesus doesn't even want to be on your list. Amen. He doesn't even want to be on your list. God is in a category all by himself. Yes, he is. And he will have no other gods before him, beside him, or even near him. And that includes the idol that you make of your family. Jesus said, your love for me should be so sincere, so genuine, so deep, that compared to every other domestic relationship, the contrast will look like the difference between love and hate. Your love for Jesus is to be superior to all other loves. Number four, the gospel divides demandingly. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take, who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus demands those who follow him to die to self and to live for God. I think of Galatians, write it down memory verse. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, Jesus demands Christians to die to self and to live for him and to allow him to become your life. Understand something. Jesus does not want to be first in your life. He wants to become your life. You've heard me say this before. God is not looking for priority. He's looking for what? Preeminence. He wants to become your life. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. Are you hearing me? And for me to die is gain. My life is Christ. Now, I'm not making him first. As if I have a long list of things and making him first. He is my life. I am crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live. But Christ lives in me. He demands that from the Christian. He's demanding you should be different because your life is Christ. He's not a part of your life. He's not first in your life. He is your life. And I think that's the problem with the church. And that's the problem with, 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 the, with the world looking at the Christians. We look so much like the world, we can't tell who's who and what's what. The world should be able to look at you and know you're different. You don't laugh at the jokes in the office. They telling these off-color jokes in the office and you're like, <laughs> no, you're different. And the world should see that difference in you. And I can tell you something, if they don't see that difference in you, you might want to check in. You might want to check in because something's wrong with you. Hallelujah. Something's wrong with you because when you become a Christian, you're different. I'm a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And old things pass away and behold, all things become new. So if you're new, then you're new. Brand spanking new. Brand spanking. You hear the word lately? Spanking. Brand spanking new. That's the life of the Christian, the born again Christian, that little girl who gave her life to Christ that night with the Katinas, eight years old. Jesus said, You got to come with me as a child. And she's brand new. Brand new with the God that we all come to God and say, God, I want you to be my life. So everything I think of, I think of you first. What would God do? What would God say? How would God respond? What would God, how would God act? You start in heaven. I always tell people, the key to happiness is live your life backwards. You heard me say this before, haven't I? Live your life backwards, right? From heaven to earth. God, what do you want? Live your life. God, how should I respond? Live your life. God, where should I work? Live your life. God, where should I live? Live your life. God, what car should I drive? Live your life. God will lead you. The gospel is demanding 
Not only that, number four, but number five, the gospel divides permanently. Jesus divides the whole world permanently for all eternity. That's what Jesus meant when he said, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He was saying that those who think they have found their lives in this world actually have lost their lives and are on their way to hell. But those who have lost their lives by rejecting this world and receiving Christ actually receive life, life eternal in Christ. Is a permanent division between the believer and the non-believer. It was Charles Spurgeon who said this. Y'all know I like Spur- uh, C.H. Spurgeon. And he said this. He preached this sermon in the late 1800s. And he preached it to approximately 6,000 people every Sunday morning in London for almost 40 years he preached. And in 1886, while preaching in London, Spurgeon shouted toward the crowd at the end of his message... And he said, to each one of you, I say with deepest earnestness, let a division be made by your conscience. Let your understanding separate between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. Let each man question himself this morning. Am I on the Lord's side? Am I for Christ or for his enemies? Do I gather with him or do I scatter abroad? Divide, divide, I say, they say in the house of commons. And let us say the same in this great congregation this day. Political divisions are but trifles compared with all important distinction or division which I would have you to consider. Divide as you will be divided, to the right or to the left. In the great day when Christ shall judge the world in righteousness, divide as you will be divided when the bliss of heaven or the woes of hell shall be your everlasting portion. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who is on the Lord's side, said Moses. Come and follow me. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is your God, said Elijah, follow him and serve him. But if not, if Baal is your God, follow him. But choose you this day day whom you will serve. Oh, love it. Love it. Love it. Spurgeon understood. Are you listening? He understood the gospel of Jesus Christ divides mankind. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You're either for him or against him. You're either following him or you're opposing him. He will not allow you to be indecisive. And in the words of Mr. Spurgeon, divide, divide, I say, divide. Well, in our text, let's get back there. In our text, look at verse 47. There's a division among the council. The council, if you're taking notes, you write this down, is the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court, the High Court, the Sanhedrin. This is the only time in John's gospel that the Sanhedrin is mentioned. The chief priests were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees didn't believe in anything spiritual. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the Holy Spirit. They didn't believe in anything spiritual, which made them sad, you see. I love that one. I've been telling that one for 20 years. I love that one. And the Pharisees, well, they were legalists, and they, uh, you know, put burdens on people, you know, the Pharisees, and, uh, and they were the legalists of that day, which uh, meant that they weren't fair, you see. I like those. I don't know. I've been doing some for years. So they gather, notice in our text, they gather together this council, the Jewish council. Y'all with me? Say amen. 
uh, they, they gather together and they say, what do we do with this situation? What's the situation? Well, the situation is Jesus is doing miracles and they're afraid that if they don't do something, more people are going to turn away from them and turn to Jesus. Look at verse 48. The Romans will come and take away both our place, their position, and the nation. Now, remember the Babylonians had come and taken them out of their place before. So keep in mind now, they are currently under Roman rule. And the Romans would arrest anyone that gave them problems and ship them off to another country. And then they would mix into another world. So the Jewish council is afraid that that might happen to them if they don't do something about this Jesus. The council fears if more and more people believe in Jesus, the Roman Empire, who actually rules Rome, will come crashing down and take away the little bit of freedom and autonomy that they do have. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch and Calvary Chapel Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light. Let me be a salt.